On this episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, including the release by AAAHC of the version 43 standards, problems with the Medicare administrator contracts, and 2024 payment rates, contagious disease outbreaks, and in our focus segment, we discuss the 2024 HOPD ASC final payment rule, the 2024 Medicare quality reporting system, and discuss payment and coding updates with Christina Benton from Coding Compliance Management. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsor, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which is the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs, and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 210 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for January 5th, 2024, recording from our studios in Spenceport, New York. This is Katie Pearson, guest co-host of the ASC podcast with John Gailey and regulatory specialist for ambulatory healthcare strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we will advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So I think the uh, the first thing that's, uh, that everybody's asking right now, Katie, is who is Katie, and why <laughs> is Sue not uh, introducing John this week? <laughs> Good so, question. <laughs> Katie, you've, of course, been on the podcast a number of times, and uh, um, I've had to call upon you to assist me this week. Uh, for those that are not aware of it, which I would imagine are most of our audience, uh, Sue uh, was blessed with a new granddaughter um, just before Christmas, and her uh, daughter, unfortunately, is having some complications from the pregnancy and has been in the hospital for, for quite a while, and Sue has to uh, uh, be in the hospital with her to help take care of the baby. So she has not been able to do um, any of the recordings here, and uh, Katie has volunteered uh, <laughs> a little bit of arm twisting. No, no, not, not at all. Uh, volunteered to help us out. So uh, we're recording this remotely. We're not, I'm in the studio, but Katie is down in Texas where she has a heck of a lot better weather than I do up here. But welcome, Katie. It's so great to have you. 
Thank you so much. And absolutely happy to fill in as they're they're dealing with what they're doing and, and hoping for a speedy recovery for everyone, of course. And yes, it is a balmy 61 degrees here today in Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's not that here. It's uh, yeah, it's below freezing. And, uh, you know, Rosie's uh, when we let Rosie, our, our golden retriever, pup, uh, I keep saying puppy. She's no longer a puppy, obviously. Let her outside. She she stays out for about a minute and then comes running back in. And and uh, Katie, or, uh, Katie, I was telling you earlier that uh, Rosie keep, you know, she the, uh, Sue and Amy haven't been around for, you know, the good two weeks. And she keeps uh, standing in front of me, looking at me like what have you done with them apparently it is my fault that uh, half her family is gone but uh, bring them back <laughs> well katie i you know we did announce this during uh, one of our uh, previous episodes but uh, you joined amateur healthcare strategies just before christmas and uh, how's your experience been so far working for this prestigious group of people Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, It's been a wonderful experience thus far. And I'm not just saying that because you're signing my paycheck, of course. Uh, Everyone has been really welcoming. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff I love is helping out facilities figure out, you know, new ways or different ways to do things or even just helping guide them on some of the regulatory and compliance standards. Uh, And, you know, it's just been it's been a great experience so far. Well, thank you so much for uh, being with us. And uh, Katie is still just kind of uh, getting on board right now. It takes a good you know, six to nine months to get to know what goes on in our company. Yeah. So uh, she's the only person, I think, that has free time right now, given that a lot of people are covering <laughs> for Amy and Sue as they're out. So I do appreciate that you had some time to spend with me. Well, this is a, a new year, and uh, this represents, or this is the beginning of our seventh year, Katie, of doing this podcast. It seems unbelievable to me. Um, you know, over 200 episodes, 210 episodes now. And uh, of course, we are uh, still the, the longest running podcast and, and the, uh, the the podcast with the most episodes and really the only podcast that talks about regulatory issues a lot. And I think that has been a main focus of it. And looking back on 2023, uh, we've had a lot, of, a lot going on. We launched a brand new website, asc-central.com, better known as ASC Central, uh, where all of our uh, conference information is now available. So Make sure uh, you check that website out. We do have links from ASC Podcast to that website, but we had to separate them out in order to make it a little bit easier for people to find the content. And, of course, in 2023, we introduced the uh, Business Office Manager uh, Conference, which was a, a great success, new one coming up in March. And uh, in uh, November and uh, in, and then – and in November, we had two very successful conferences, one on an introduction to finance and accounting – and uh, for ASCs. And the second was the Conditions for Coverage Conference, which uh, both of them had been um, the most popular conferences outside our multi-state conference that we've ever done. And now, Katie, um, uh, next week on the 11th and 12th, we have the Credentialing, Peer Review, Credentialing Privileging, and Peer Review Conference, which already uh, has beat the records of the previous two that we just talked about. So we're we're very excited. I know you're going to be joining me uh, yes. with uh, the rest of the panel there on uh, Thursday and Friday. So uh, if you haven't signed up for it yet, uh, definitely go to asc-central.com to uh, visit that. What's really exciting about your seventh year here, too, is if you're someone who is as committed to this podcast as I have been uh, going back and listening to those earlier episodes to where you are today. It's just really exciting to to see and, and watch y'all uh, elevate 
you know, the quality, the, the material yeah. uh, that you've that you've done since the beginning. <laughs> well, and, and to that point, you were one of our early listeners as well as one of our early patron members, actually. Yeah. And that's yeah. how we got to know you. Uh, and then we. Uh, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time. It seems like we've known you forever, though. But, right. uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how we, we got to, to learn all about you. And one of the ways that the podcast has been able to survive for this long is the generous support of all of our sponsors. And I thought I would take this time and I thought I would take some time at the beginning of uh, of our seventh year to, again, thank you all of our sponsors. First of all, I want to thank Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, our producing sponsor. They, of course, have been with us since day one. They uh, provide... Uh, you know, a lot of our research staff, uh, they're providing Katie right now to us, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, we, we could not do it without all the great stories that we get from the, the hard work over at Ambitory Healthcare Strategy. Surgical Information Systems, of course, has been with us almost from the very beginning. Uh, we are passionate about their software. We love the people that are over at uh, SIS, and of course, we have great podcasts and, and speakers from them on a regular basis. In 2023, Trivalence joined us. Trivalence has a great uh, platform. Kind of looks a little bit like Amazon. I, I don't know if they're getting tired of me uh, re- referring to them as the uh, Amazon for healthcare, but uh, they have a, a great way for looking up products and also payment solutions. And joining yeah. us in 2024 is MedServe. Uh, those that have followed the podcast from the very beginning might remember uh, just before the pandemic, they were a sponsor of one episode. Uh, and at that time, the name of the company was Care Direct. Uh, but today they uh, go under the MedServe line, and they uh, they have a fantastic product, which is a uh, uh, which helps prevent uh, drug diversion by offering a um, an electronic uh, solution with kind of, kind of like a a Pixis for ambulatory surgery centers, but a lot smaller and, and a lot more affordable. Uh, we're going to be talking about them quite a bit in the next uh, year, and and of course they uh, they will be joining us regularly to talk about pharmacy issues. And indeed, uh, Katie, I know you uh, listened to a uh, interview which we'll talk about in a few minutes uh, that was from one of the founders of uh, of MedServe. So again, I want to thank all of our sponsors. Thank you again for the uh, you know sponsoring this uh, this resource and for being there for us uh, throughout the years. So let's uh, talk about the news. Uh, first of all, Triple uh, H C announced version 43 of their accreditation standards. Uh, it is very different. It moved from a chapter format to a category type methodology, uh, very similar to uh, Joint Commission. Uh, the uh, the numbering system looks very similar to uh, uh, to Joint Commission. The final accreditation manual just came out, and they uh, have um, uh, made it available to anybody that's accredited. And, of course, you will be able to purchase it shortly if you're not currently accredited. If you're a client of AHS, we have been working with you to drop all of your uh, the accreditation manuals into your extranets. Um, at the present time, there's no real crosswalk between the new categories and the chapters, uh, I don't know if that's something that they hope to do in the future. You know, Katie, uh, Katie, you've been working on some of our uh, policy manuals. That's one of the first things you were assigned to, and mm-hmm. uh, met many, uh, well, almost all of our uh, organizations over at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies have policy manuals that are based upon the chapters that they're Triple HC accredited. So uh, that's one thing that I know you're going to be. Uh, uh, yeah, we're trying to with. figure out which category now that policy lives in because yeah. the information is not necessarily as different, but it's now trying to fit it in a different area. <laughs> right. And, and to your point, there's not a lot of content changes this year. Yeah. And a 
big reason for them moving to the category is to reduce the redundancy between the chapters. I haven't read the manual enough to see if they've been successful in doing that. Any any feedback you've had yet? I know you, you've probably read more of it than anybody in the company right now. Yeah, there's, to your point, again, not a lot of content changes to it. Uh, what it looks like they've done is try to consolidate some of the chapters they had into a single area, which kind of gets confusing because you're, it's like you're looking for this thing, like the lithotripsy yeah. information is just kind of popped in there. <laughs> yeah. And there's no, um, yeah, it's not, it's not as easy to find as it was when it was in a chapter. I, I guess I, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, ragging on them since I, I do work with Triple HC obviously as a surveyor. Um, but, you know, the formatting is a little bit awkward and, and maybe it's just because I'm, you know, 35 years, 34 years, I've been using the the old format, and I I'm, I know the chapters. I have them all memorized, and now right. i got to learn everything from scratch. But the formatting seems just a little bit more awkward than um, than you know what what was a very mature system in the chapter format. But I do understand why they've moved to this format, and uh, I think uh, it will be successful. I think it will be a a great tool. Um, some of the other things that are coming out with the new system, there will be a new computer system that will uh, be released. They are anticipating that's going to be sometime in April now, uh, and that man that system will be will replace the multiple systems they currently have. Uh, so it'll integrate the, uh, the the systems that you have for the application for the uh, plan of correction. The surveyor system will be the same as as that system now too. Um, so we're looking forward to uh, so that that uh, integration. Uh, also, another change that occurred with V42 and will be fully implemented in V43 is that you are going to be required to do a plan of correction. A, a, a plan for improvement might be a more proper term, even if you are a non-deemed status surgery center. So in the past, if you were not deemed, you did not have to file um, a plan of correction with HHC. That will no longer be the case in uh, V43. Now, that kind of matches up with what uh, Joint Commission, Quad A does, and ACHC, at least on an annual basis. But um, it's something that uh, you'll have to be prepared for. I want to clarify, I saw a crosswalk at the end of the manual. So I just want to, are you talking about V42 versus V43? No, uh, there is oh. a crosswalk between V43 and V42. There's mm -hmm. not a crosswalk between the chapters and the sections, though. So that we're a little bit disappointed with that because I thought that would... Um, you know, okay. definitely make things a little bit easier for, for centers as they revise their policy manuals. But that does not seem to be the case, at least yet. Um, I know within ambulatory healthcare strategies, we're going to be creating a crosswalk because we really have no choice but to do that as we revise your policies. So my recommendation is that we move away from the chapter format and into the uh, uh, the category format that that uh, HHC is using. It just makes things easier. And lastly, I just wanted to note that uh, there is a webinar that HHC has made available. I believe it's coming up in a week, um, and there will be a recording made of it also. So, uh, And the, the uh, webinar is free, so really, really recommend all of you to uh, listen to it, even if you're a client of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, because uh, it'll make your life that much easier to understand what we're talking about as we go through all the changes with you.
And then yesterday I found out about a problem with the Medicare administrative contractors, administrative contractors. Um, for those of you that know how CMS works, CMS uses the Medicare administrative contractors to deal with the claims processing for ambulatory surgery centers, actually for all providers, but in particular for ASCs. And we discovered yesterday that the payment information for some, apparently not all, but some of the Medicare administrative contractors, better known as Max, is incorrect. We noticed this because one of our clients said, why did my Medicare reimbursement for cataract surgery go down uh, 50%? And uh, indeed, the, we uh, checked it out, went to the website that they used to f- see the calculation, and the uh, uh, the website, which was sponsored by the MAC, had the wrong information. So if you're using the MAC, the Medicare administrative contractor for your region, uh, to look up your new payment rates for 2024, uh, you may have misinformation there. Now, if you're an ASCA member, ASCA, of course, provides you with with a uh, Medicare uh, payment rate calculator, which is available on uh, in, inside the uh, protected area uh, at ASCA. Uh, and if you're not, I'll provide a link to all of the CMS final payment rule information, which includes spreadsheets that have the uh, the new payment rates, at least the, uh, the national numbers. Remember that the national number is adjusted for your area based upon salary. Um, you know, salaries for your particular region. So uh, don't panic if you uh, did look up those rates. Uh, indeed, they are wrong. And uh, hopefully they'll be corrected soon. And I know uh, ASCA sent out an email recently indicating that they had been made aware of it also. Katie, I believe you have some news. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, found that Suffolk County health officials uh, have found a t- 2,600% year-over-year increase in whooping cough. Uh, there's been at least 100 cases reported now since November 28th, and uh, luckily no hospitalizations to date, but uh, they're finding that it was primarily amongst school-age children, and they're surmising that because of the decrease in vaccinations around COVID time or just people's hesitancy, uh, that there's just been this uptick and, and not maybe putting too much emphasis on getting the Tdap shot over COVID-19 in the blue. Right. So um, that was interesting to see. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more concerned about. You know, I'm not a big fan of being vaccinated 20 times for COVID, uh, sure. but I believe what's happening is that uh, people are taking their frustration with the COVID vaccine out on all of the vaccines. And and I think there's more more hesitancy than there ever was before. And that really is going to start causing some major problems, I think, down the road. Yeah. We're already seeing it even with the flu shots. People are, are not signing up for them like they had in the past. And it's just scary because, you know, the infants can't, don't get it. Right. Yeah, and you know, until a little later on. So just trying to protect them as well. And uh, you know, they obviously recommend that if you're sick, stay home, wear a mask. Uh if you're out there, stay away from children right. <laughs> if you're exhibiting any symptoms. So um Yeah, and to that end, I read an article. It was actually in a on a website called healthcaredive.com, and they found that, that New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Massachusetts, and other communities are reinstating mask mandates in healthcare facilities in response to an increase in the spread of various viruses, including COVID-19. The New York City Health Commissioner uh, reinstated the indoor mask mandate on January 3rd for all public hospitals, health centers, and long-term care facilities. Now, I have not seen uh, the definitive 
uh, definitive information for New York City Ambulatory Surgery Centers about this. Uh, but um, I, I just read this today, Katie, so we'll have to look that up for our New York City centers. But uh, keep an eye out for any of those mask mandate changes in your community. And this comes as healthcare systems in other cities uh, and states have also reinstated masking guidelines in Chicago. Uh, Healthcare Dive reports that the Rush University Medical Center, the Rush Copley Medical Mm -hmm. Center, and the Rush Oak Park Hospital announced on January 2nd a new policy requiring patients, visitors, and staff to wear hospital-approved face masks. Again, you know, things like uh, uh, regular face masks instead of cloth cloth face masks in waiting areas, patient rooms, and other interactive settings. And this was just weeks after Cook County Health and Endeavor Health implemented similar mandates in in the same area. And then Healthcare Dive also reported that in California, Los Angeles County put in place a masking requirement on December 27th for staff and visitors at all licensed healthcare facilities after the CDC reported 10.5 new COVID hospital admissions per 100,000 people in the county for a week ending December 23rd. And this is uh, according to a CBS News report. And lastly, Healthcare Dive also reported that Mass General Brigham, uh, UMass uh, Memorial, and Tufts Medicine are uh, joining Beth Israel Leahy, Boston Medical Center, and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in enacting similar requirements in Massachusetts. So it's very important that you keep an eye out for masking mandates in, in your area. We do have a couple clients at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies that have kept the masking requirement in place. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Katie, do you have any observations down there in Texas, the wild state of Texas? I mean, it was really hopeful to think that four years later, we yeah. wouldn't be talking about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But unfortunately, it's our reality. And uh, it's I don't I don't see it going away necessarily, you know, doing things like looking at a, a risk face, uh, you know, where where the upticks are makes right. sense, which which is nice. But I mean, even in Texas, we're still seeing Plenty of cases of COVID uh, facilities, you know, seeing outbreaks. It's not, it's not gone. Right. Um, so anything we can do to help mitigate it is, is still going to be necessary. Well, I, I did find it interesting that CDC report on uh, Los Angeles County, uh, 10.5 hospital admissions per 100,000. That is not a lot. Now, uh, they didn't provide data, or at least I didn't have the data on how many cases of COVID have been um, sure. detected. And I, I assume that's really the reason that this was implemented. But I do think that uh, for the most part, we're not seeing heavy hospitalization related to it. But because it's such a virulent, um, you know, uh, uh, virus, um, yeah. you know, it is something that has to be uh, kept Very an eye contagious, on. contagious, yeah. Yeah. And we we have two employees right now that are out with uh, covid uh, One right. who has just keeps going out with COVID, unfortunately, it just keeps coming back. Uh, ni- none of them, neither of them have been hospitalized for it. Uh, but it, and it, it's worse than the flu, but, you know, not as bad as, you know, uh, at, at the worst time during the, the uh, pandemic where, you know, people were uh, just about to go to the emergency room or, or had to go to the emergency room. So, um, but we, I think that the problem with that is we might start to get lax um, and forget that this still is something that you have to take care of and, and monitor closely. Uh, so keep up. Um, you know, questions come up, Katie, quite a bit among our clients is how much monitoring do I need to do? And I think one thing to remember now is not to focus so much on COVID-19 as any communicable disease. So we should treat them all the same. RSV, you know, the flu, 
uh, COVID, et cetera. So we, we well, in Ebola, I, I don't think we have Ebola out there, but in the state of New York, you still have to screen for Ebola. Uh, that, that rule has never gone away. Um, so uh, you still should be uh, doing screening, uh, asking screening questions. You don't necessarily need to, uh, um, you know. Be specific about COVID-19. Right, yeah. right. Uh, So uh, keep an eye out for it and obviously keep track of what's going on in your community. You know, for example, New York City, you know, has this mandate, but New York State does not. And and also determine whether it's uh, it it applies to your particular organization. Katie, I think you have. uh, And Katie, I think you have uh, some news about pharmaceutical drug uh, costs. Yeah, so. Annually, Reuters does research on the drug price increases, and good news and bad news is there's going to be about a 5% increase in drugs for 2024, and the reason why that's not so bad is because that's pretty much on average what they they increase year over year. Uh, What I found interesting is, you know, folks are excited to see a decrease in the price of insulin because there's a lot of focus and energy around that, even from the federal level. Uh, however, where they're seeing increases are on, you know, some of our drugs that we use in the yeah. ASC industry, of course. When we uh, can get so, them. What's that? When we can get them. When we can even get them. That's right. correct. Uh, and I think that's it, a supply and demand issue has has absolutely been created. And, uh, and, and those... And the drugs that are related to weight loss, like Munjaro and Ozempic are seeing a, a fair increase as well because there is such a high demand for them now. So uh, something to watch for. And of course, you know, managing your supply chain around that is going to be really important for this upcoming year. Yeah. And we do want to refer people back to the last episode, 209, when we talked about Azempic and uh, preoperative indications for it. Uh, the anesthesiologists in particular are very concerned about um, about how they uh, take care of patients or what they do with patients that are on Ozempic prior to surgery because of the uh, the nature of that particular drug. So definitely listen to that and talk to your anesthesiologist about it. Katie, I think one thing that I found interesting is uh, we're, you know, we're talking about a 5% increase as though it's not a big deal. But as we're going to talk about in, in, the, in the second segment here, um, drug, uh, you know, the reimbursement rates are only going up 3.7%. You know, uh, which, of course, doesn't come close to covering that. And we know that wage inflation, of course, has gone up considerably more. So, you know, every year we get further and further behind. So I'm grateful that it's only going up 5%, but still it, it just shows that uh, our reimbursement is just not keeping pace with the uh, uh, the costs that we're experiencing. No. And then Alex Yampolsky with uh, MedServe, our, our newest sponsor. He's a PharmD and an MBA um, he uh, did an interview, or he did an interview recently with another friend of the podcast, John Karwalski, uh, recently. And uh, Katie, I made you listen to the interview. I didn't have time to do that, uh, but he was talking about a, a topic that we talk about quite a bit: uh, drug diversion. Here, do you want to kind of give an overview of that? And we'll provide a link to that particular interview, and we will have Alex on um, the podcast within the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, but can you get, kind of give an overview of that discussion they had? Yeah, he referred specifically to that most recent uh, situation with the nursing uh, diversion with fentanyl in Florida. And, uh, you know, just kind of highlights that there it's it's 
not easy to identify until it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, the John was talking about uh, how he'll do audits, but you can't necessarily catch it right away. And so with the product that MedServe offers, you know, there's that real time tracking yeah. and, you know, almost that safeguard to, to show where the drugs are, who's, who's touching them on an ongoing basis versus anybody writing down things or going back at the end of the day to remember what they've done or, and, and then checking for it. So it's a, well, and I, I'm very concerned about this because what I, I found a bit of a lax attitude when they do find a discrepancy. Often I find that a discrepancy is identified and then, you know, it's, of course, it's something that's identified at the end of the day as everybody's, you know, leaving or gone. Um, and, and they say, well, it's got to be a miscount. You know, we'll we'll figure it out tomorrow. And yeah. my concern has always been, I, I, I mean, my attitude is nobody leaves until that that issue is resolved because the minute, you know, people leave, then, you know, their, their memories start to fail them. They can't remember, you know, maybe garbage will be taken out. Maybe that's where, you know, the drugs were, uh, were gone. So uh, if you do ever end up with a discrepancy, you know, it's something that has to be investigated right away. And also recognize that if it's a controlled substance, you might have legal ramifications and a reporting requirement. And that reporting requirement is kind of scary. Those people from the DEA, they carry guns. So, uh, you know, you don't want to be in that uh, position. They're not going to use them on you. Don't worry. But you definitely need to take this thing seriously. And, and Katie, another thing that I, I have a concern about, which doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily solved by you know products like um, you know MedServe's product, is drugs that are not controlled but are still you know dangerous. And you know propofol, of course, is what comes to mind right away. Um, I would say half of the diversions that we've um, been aware of over the last couple of years, be it because I'm a surveyor or because, you know, we've had clients that have had to deal with an issue, have involved um, propofol. Um, and it doesn't have the same reporting or uh, inventorying requirements that, um, you know, that the other drugs have. So, you know, my personal feeling, and I have talked to MedServe about this, is I really do feel that it should be treated as a controlled substance, even though you don't have those requirements, those strict requirements. Yeah, we tracked propofol at the facilities that I was the administrator over because of those reasons. Uh, my pharmacy consultant made a very big push for that on uh, my first facility. So then I kept going with that uh, anywhere else I went. And when the nice thing about MedServe, though, is that they do offer that larger cabinet, that secondary cabinet, yeah. in case you do decide to move forward with tracking propofol, which to your point, I would highly recommend because it's such an easy drug because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, there's, it's always in such large quantity, you know, so taking one of 400 vials of something is a lot easier than taking one of 20 vials of something. So agreed. Um, well, and, yeah. and you're right, the quantity that you store and the quantity that tends to be in your operating rooms or your procedure rooms, depending on what you're doing, uh, tends to be a lot larger than, you know, things like fentanyl, for example. And I think that uh, I've, I've walked into centers at, at that, you know, the entire case of of propofol has been laying on the counter and, you know, no licensed individual, you know, insight. Uh, and, and I understand, you know, these are quick turnover. You got a lot of things going on and, you know, we trust our employees, but 
it it doesn't matter. I, I mean, it's sometimes the most trusted employees are the ones that we find out are using or end up having some time of major some type of a major event involving drug diversions. So, um, I guess enough said. I I feel like I've been talking about this a lot, but uh, hopefully people are getting the the point. And I know we're going to have Alex on. We keep talking about drug diversion. I think at least five episodes in the last year about it, or where we've talked about it or mentioned it, but uh, mm-hmm. more to come. Really interesting too with the anesthesia shortage or, you know, lack of, uh, with who's managing these drugs now as well. Uh, I think we're just going to see this, uh, apex of issues with drugs, uh, over the next year or two, um, with that as, you know, also. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, we've talked about, we're going to be talking about it a little bit more in the next couple months too. You know, what are our alternatives to the traditional anesthesia models that we've seen, you know, uh, Conscious sedation, in other words, uh, RN administered uh, sedation, mm-hmm. um, which you know many nurses. I know you're a you're a nurse. Uh, you know, uh, even with the experience level that you have and the sophistication. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Katie is a doctorate in nursing. Uh, mm-hmm. I always like picking on her, Doctor Katie. <laughs> um, but uh, even with that level of sophistication, you and I have talked. You don't want to be doing sedation, right? No, I don't. And and it kind of goes back to that point that whom is now managing these drugs and you're putting more and more fentanyl and versed in the hands of just additional staff. It's, you know, not about a nurse and their, their level of ability, education, anything like that. It's just adding more individuals uh, to managing those drugs. Exactly. Very well said. Well, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll uh, kind of put the whole discussion about the 2024 HOPD ASC payment rate to bed where uh, we've, we've been talking about it a little bit piecemeal, but we're, uh, we're in our second segment here. We're going to be uh, going in depth. So let's take a short break and uh, we'll talk about the 2024 HOPD ASC payment rule. With the rapid changes occurring in the ASC industry, the exodus of experienced ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers, there is an increasing demand for quality leadership education. That's where our industry-leading boot camps come in. In 2021, we introduced our administrator boot camp and the director of nursing boot camp, and in 2023, the business office manager boot camp. These boot camps have become the industry standard for ASC leadership training, and with over 225 graduates, lead the industry in mentored virtual training. Live virtual training for the administrator boot camp occurs every January and July, and the director of nursing boot camp is October and May. Our new business office manager boot camp will continue in the spring of 2024. There are also on-demand versions of each boot camp for those who simply can't attend the live virtual programs. All boot camps, including the on-demand boot camps, include access to resources, membership in the ASC Central Patron Program, copies of John's latest books, access to credentialing, conditions for coverage, and other recorded training programs, and of course, our regular drop-in Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and interact with other patron and boot camp members. Our programs also include AEU credits for those that are CASC certified. Our programs are comprehensive and taught by the nation's leading ASC experts and are designed for all levels of leadership, from experienced leaders who want to enhance their skills or pass the CASC exam, or those who are new to the industry and wish to learn how to run an ASC. 
For more information about our live, virtual, and on-demand programs, visit ASC Central at asc-central.com. Or you can call us at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ASCPodcast.com for more information. On an annual basis, CMS publishes a proposed and then eventually a final payment rule for the HOPD and ASC payment rules, as well as the Medicare quality reporting uh, requirements. This is officially known as the Medicare Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System and Ambulatory Surgical Center Payment System proposed rule, uh, which is issued in July of each year, and the final rule, which is issued either in November or December of each year. We thought we would dedicate our focus segment this week to discussing the 2024 rule. There aren't really a lot of major changes in the 2024 rule. Uh, Really no bad news this year other than disappointing inflationary increases, which we'll talk about when we interview Christina Benton later on. Let's start with the Medicare quality reporting requirements and changes for 2024. For reporting in 2024, there are 12 measures required by CMS to avoid a Medicare payment reduction of 2% in the amount of your increase. So this gets a little confusing, doesn't it, Katie? So every year you get an increase in your rate. That increase would be reduced by 2% if you didn't uh, do the Medicare quality reporting. Now, I have never actually seen this. um, I mean, I know it's happening, but I don't think any of our clients have ever run into this scenario. So I've never actually seen how it it works in the payment system. But given how the max, as we talked about in the first segment, are already having problems coming up with the payment rates, you know, based upon the 2024, you know, final rule, I can't imagine how they kind of mess it up for anybody that's not doing the the, the reporting. But it is important that uh, you are aware of, understand uh, and keep up to date with all the changes in the uh, Medicare quality reporting requirements. Now, we report, we refer to the Medicare quality system as ASCQR, or the ASC quality reporting. And uh, the deadline for submitting most of the program data for the ASCQR is mo- uh, May 15th of the following year. So the next reporting period is May 15th, 2024. And as we go through these different reporting requirements, we'll discuss which ones are reported then. And then there are some that have to be reported on a quarterly basis. Yes. So for all of you newer administrators or folks that are going to be reporting out for your center this year, make sure you get on to that ASCQR website prior to May so you're not trying to figure it out during those last minutes of reporting. That's right. Uh, speaking from experience, correct, Katie? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and they, and those uh, those of you that are not aware of it, hopefully you all are aware of it now, the, the portal, the uh, reporting portal has moved to the, it's called the Hospital Quality Reporting Secure Portal. Nothing is easy when it comes to the government, no. huh? Uh, and it is a cms.org gov website. Um, and there's a lot of information available still on the QualityNet website, which is at qualitynet.cms.gov. And we're going to provide links to all of this. But if you want information on how to do the reporting and the specifications manual, that's available on QualityNet, 
which is at qualitynet.cms.gov. If you actually want to do the reporting, you have to go to the uh, hospital quality reporting portal, which is at hqr.cms.gov. And again, we'll provide links to this. And as Katie said, uh, sooner the better for signing up for it, because I think you do have to give up your firstborn child. Is that correct? That's right. In order to be able to sign up. You have to give a lot of personal information to do this. And uh, keep logging in so that your uh, login does not disappear uh, or your ability to log in doesn't disappear. So let's, uh, Katie, let's provide a succinct summary of the 2024 quality reporting requirements. I'll start with ASC 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, so ASC 1 is patient burns. ASC 2 is patient falls. ASC 3 is wrong site, wrong side, wrong patient, wrong procedure, wrong implant. Uh, and ASC 4 is all-cause hospital transfer admissions. For those that have been around for a while, you might remember that these four measures were around from the beginning until very recently and were reported through the Medicare claims process and only for Medicare patients. Uh, The measures were reinstituted in 2023, and data for those measures must be collected for all patients, not just uh, fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries, which was the case in the old claims-based reporting system. And they will be reported in uh, May 15, 2024, uh, using – on May 15, 2024, using that HQR secure portal. Uh, And it is going to be based upon the 2023 data. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Hopefully you gather all this information through 2023. If you didn't, you're going to have to go back and uh, and do some uh, heavy-duty work to find out all this information. Again, all of those items, though, probably were or should have been reported through your quality improvement program. So hopefully you can just go back through that. Hopefully it's computerized if you weren't collecting it in this format in the past. And of course, if you're using any of those great systems out there like our sponsor, SIS, uh, it's relatively easy to pull that information out. As exciting as it is when you get rid of measures that you're mandatorily required to report out, these were ones that I decided to continue to collect and trend, uh, you know, thinking that they're still pretty important. So I don't, I'm not going to stop. And, you know, so it was easy to to get that data for, for 2024 at the center I was working at. <laughs> yeah, and I think you were not alone. I think a lot of people did that because it was just easier to keep doing it. Many, even when it was only claims-based and only Medicare fee-for-service reporting required, it was difficult to only separate out the Medicare patients. Right. So they often did it for everybody. I remember in, in many medical records over the years seeing that form there that indicated whether any of those thing, complications had occurred. But again, this should not be a problem if you're doing proper incident reporting and gathering the data on all of these items. Right. All right. Then ASC 9 is the endoscopy and polyp surveillance. Uh, So appropriate follow-up interval for normal colonoscopy and average risk patients. This is a web-based measure that is also reported via the HQR secure portal. Uh, It's for all Medicare certified ASCs who need to report this data, even if you don't do GI procedures. So if you don't do colonoscopies, you'll you'll still check the box um, that is, you know, in there and just enter zeros, which will indicate that you don't have any data to submit. And again, it's submitted through that HQR secure portal. Yeah. And, and again, we can't emphasize enough that even if you don't ever do these procedures, the next measure is the same. Oh, well, one of the other measures coming up is the same situation with cataracts. Uh, you still have to report zero. And I think that's counterintuitive, but you have to check that box when you're yeah. going through that uh, that website. And ASC 12 is the facility seven-day risk standardized hosp- hospital visit rate after outpatient colonoscopy. 
Uh, they're like all of my books, uh, Katie. Everything is a very long title here. Very wordy. Very wordy, yes. <laughs> and this is a measure that is reported by hospitals about patients of ambulatory surgery centers that are presented to the hospital within seven days of discharge from the ASC. Now, you don't have to submit any uh, information about this measure, but make sure that you have a way to collect data from patients and your doctors to follow up on these visits. And the reason for this is this information is going to become public and uh, publicly available to your patients. So you want to be able to uh, to make sure, first of all, that that information is accurate out there uh, and that you uh, were aware of any patient that was hospitalized. Now, many times, especially after a colonoscopy, uh, though not always, of course, uh, you know, those hospitalizations don't have anything to do with the, uh, the surgery center or you would have been notified about it. Uh, but you do need to have some type of assistance to gather that information. And then the ASC 13 is the normal thermia outcome. It's a continued measure through 2024, and it's used to assess the percentage of patients that have had surgical procedures under general or neuroaxial anesthesia for at least 60 minutes or more in duration and who are normothermic within 15 minutes of their arrival to the PACU. This is a measure that requires you to do a sampling. Um, so, and if you don't have general anesthesia or any other procedures that involve that type of anesthesia, just like ASC9, you still have to report it. You still have to go in. You still have to put the zeros. And this is one that I find fascinating that we're still tracking and trending and reporting out on. <laughs> to yeah, be. Because they haven't found any problems with it. I remember talking to Bill Prentice about this is why do they pull these statistics that have good outcomes uh, and keep reporting on it, other than the fact that it makes us look good, of course, which I think is, is, is a valuable. But again, I don't find a lot of value in this particular measure here. Uh, so Katie, uh, I, I'm going to ask a question. I actually do know the answer to this, but for those out there administrators who are not clinical in nature, what does normothermic mean? Yeah, so you have to be within a certain temperature range of like 98.6 uh, within 15 minutes of arriving to the PACU. If not, if you're too low, you right. know, and then you have to talk about warming measures and, and things like that that you've done. But most folks return to normal. As soon as they get out of that operating room where the doctor has kept it at 65 degrees. At 60 below degrees, zero. that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and most and most facilities are using warming blankets and, and things right. like that anyway. So patients typically don't even fall below that that normal temperature uh, anyway. So right. And ASC-14 is unplanned anterior vitrectomy. This also returns in 2024. This measure is used by centers that perform cataract surgery to report the percentage of cataract patients who have an unplanned anterior vitrectomy. Again, if your center does not perform cataract procedures, again, you report that there is no data to support to submit, and you put in zeros there. And data from last year also has to be submitted via the HQR Secure Portal. And again, the, the uh, deadline is May 15th, 2024. And then ASC 17 to 19 are hospital visit data similar to ASC 12. Uh, they're reporting to CMS by the hospitals when the hospital sees a patient that's had surgery or center within seven days of discharge from the surgery center. So ASC 17 is hospital visits after orthopedic ambulatory surgical center procedures. ASC 18 is hospital visits after urology ambulatory surgical center procedures. And ASC 19 is the facility level seven-day hospital visits after general surgery procedures performed at the ambulatory surgical centers. And I think there's a list of which procedures are applicable to each of these. I remember there were a few, even at my pain management facility, 
uh, that fell under this category. So um, be yeah, sure again, to be this, mindful of which ones are applicable to you. Yeah, and I, I think in general, again, this is not a big uh, a pro- again, you don't have to report this, but again, I encourage you to make sure that you have a mechanism for following up with the doctor, with the patient, uh, if indeed they have been admitted to the center. And you want to know, of course, if the uh, the admission to the hospital is in any way related to the procedure. Uh, and even if it's not related to the procedure, you still want to be able to close the loop on that, report it as an incident, and then just indicate that you're, you know, you the uh, the hospitalization was unrelated to the surgery. An ASC 20, isn't this our favorite, uh, Katie? COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel data. And this is submitted quarterly. So this is not part of that annual one through the HQR. This is reported quarterly through the National Healthcare Safety Network, known as NHSN. So you have to have two logins. You're going to have to have a login to NHSN and a, a login to the QualityNet system through CMS. And the 2024 reporting deadlines for this are February 15th, May 15th, August 15th, and November 15th. So February 15th, you'll be reporting third quarter data. May 15th, you'll be reporting fourth quarter data for 2023. August 15th, first quarter data for 2024. And November 15th, you'll be reporting second quarter 2024 data. Uh, We've discussed this quite a bit uh, previously, and and the reporting will continue at least through the end of 2024 on a quarterly basis. Katie, one of the things that comes up periodically, people ask me, well, I thought the vaccine mandate was gone, and it is. Uh, The reporting here is not to enforce uh, a vaccine mandate on your centers. It is to identify, much like the flu was, uh, NHSN did flu reporting uh, many years back. I can't remember when that stopped. And they just replaced that with uh, this this reporting for COVID-19. We are slightly surprised that they continued it through 2024. Um, and of course, as we get closer to the end of the year, I think, well, hopefully it'll become one of those things that, you know, we're still wondering why we're even concerned about that reporting moving forward. Right. And with the boosters and the, you know, different kinds of vaccines, I think it's just gotten more convoluted and confusing anyway on what you're tracking and how you're tracking it. And, um, right. you know, it's, it's just well, it, it is troublesome. I, and what I found, too, is that with the amount of turnover uh, that we're finding among, uh, among nursing administrators, such as you leaving your previous employer, um, you know, uh, the, the poor people that take over, they have heavy shoes to fill, Katie, over at your organization. Uh, but the people that take over now have to take over this reporting, which means that they have to get, you know, uh, access to uh, these systems. I think, uh, I, you know, I I don't spend any time on these websites. Obviously, you're, you have a lot more experience than I do. Uh, but I think one comment that I'll make is that it's important that you have more than one person that has access oh, to these websites. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes. And to sign on before the reporting time yeah. is up, because it, to your point, it's not only a lot to gain the access, but then getting used to how to get into this specific area of reporting right gets confusing as well. Write it down. Once you do it for the first time, either record what you're doing or yeah. write it down. Do a screenshot of every page. That's right. It's <laughs> all the steps. And if you're, a, if you're a client of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, we do have uh, a person on our team, Kathy, who is the, uh, the resident expert on getting into all of these systems. So certainly reach out to us. And if you're a patron member, of course, uh, you all know, and Katie well knows because she's been doing this for years. We have our, our wonderful Saturday drop-in sessions where we help people through things like this. So we mentioned in a previous episode that the OAS caps 
wasn't really discussed too much in the 2024 payment rule. I was one of those crazy people that read all 950 pages of that payment rule. I didn't read the final one, Katie. Uh, I didn't have to. I got a lot of good people that went through it for me. But I did read the uh, the proposed rule back in in uh, in July, and I think it was uh, 800 850 pages into it where they mentioned OAS caps. And to the, my recollection, there was only a short paragraph on it, which basically said that they're continuing with what they said in the 2023 payment rule that they're expecting to implement or that they will implement OAS caps in 2025. Now, we recently read, well, actually, we read a a Press Ganey blog. Now, for those that are familiar with Press Ganey, they are probably the leader out there in the various CAPS programs. Now, CAPS is uh, is a reporting mechanism for uh, different providers. Hospitals have uh, a reporting mechanism, and now OAS, which stands for the Outpatient Ambulatory, Sur- ambulatory uh, Services um, Reporting Mechanism, is now going to be implemented for ambulatory surgery centers also. Uh, but Press Ganey is uh, by far the, the largest uh, provider of this service uh, in the uh, in the country right now, and they do it for both hospitals and surgery centers. And they did a blog in, I think it was in April, which provided some great information about OAS caps. And we thought we would uh, share uh, their notes about it, and we'll provide a link to that article also, uh, because I think it was very succinct. And of course, um, you know, it's, um, I know that uh, ASC Association has a relationship with Press Ganey that they're able to give you a discount if you were to sign up for it. Uh, Katie, I know uh, you were an, uh, looking to implement the system over at your previous center. I, I don't know how far you had gotten, but we really encourage people to get on it right now. We're in the first quarter of 2024 already. Uh, it's going to be required. It's going to be mandatory in 2025. I suspect, and you probably know more than I do, that there's going to be a learning curve for here and even a setup curve. In all the forums I am a part of, it is the buzz topic right now. What are you using? How much does it cost? Yeah. What's the steps? What's going to be required? It is absolutely the number one question I'm seeing in all of the posts <laughs> that, that I, um, I'm a part of. And um, and I think the key things to be mindful of are not only the cost, obviously, is a huge component here, but also if you're using an EMR currently, if there's any kind of integration, uh, can they send it out for you? Because that's going to be a big lift if you're required to do any kind of manual work for this. So just keep that in mind as well as you're evaluating which system you're going to use. That's a very good point. And sooner the better, because uh, as we get toward the end of the year, everybody is going to be uh, jumping on these companies. You have to use a CMS-approved OAS CAPS contractor. Uh, So this is no longer something we can do on our own. Now, you can still do your own satisfaction survey. That that uh, you, you don't have to replace your existing system, though I suspect many people will. And if we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast, and I know Katie and, and our Saturday morning crowd have talked about this too, we're very concerned about what's going to happen to our satisfaction survey results. Um, mm-hmm. Because there are, what is it, 37 questions somewhere around there that are, are required yeah. in this program. And uh, as I've said many, many times, you know, if I ha- if I'm asked more than five questions on a questionnaire, I give up uh, if I'm happy. If I'm angry at the provider, I will stay on the phone for an hour talking about it. Uh, and therein lies our problem is that the satisfied patients are just not going to go through 37 questions. And the mm-hmm. ones that are angry, and especially those that are, are very angry with whatever happened, are going to spend a lot of time and provide a lot of feedback. So... 
Um, you know, another point there too is I use the same healthcare system for all my doctor's visits. Yeah. Uh, you know, my orthopedic doctor's in the same practice as my PCP as, you know, and I get a survey after every visit. And, you know, the first time I went, I filled it out and setting up everything was fine. But now I've gotten my fifth survey, you know, within a few months. And I'm like, I'm not going to, I've already done this, you know? <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm worried, I'm worried about that as well Is I'm more likely <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, and these are only about five questions. So, you know, what are the, what's the likelihood of someone filling out multiple, you know, working at a pain management uh, center, you know, we, we had pay, people repeat every two weeks. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm worried about the completion rates for those folks as well. Yeah. It is going to be interesting to see how many centers continue with their satisfaction survey results, just so that they can get a better feel for the people that are very satisfied with it. <laughs> you're also going to, you're going to have a pretty low return rate too, I would yeah. imagine, uh, because right. of the number of questions that are being asked. Right. Um, so uh, more to come on it, but let's uh, let's just go through what the blog mentioned. So the OAS CAP survey collects patient care feedback in Medicare certified hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgery centers and was developed specifically by CMS for outpatient surgery. The surveys will be administered on an ongoing basis, and when they become mandatory in 2025, HOPDs should target 300 completed annually, while ASC should target at least 200. So that's one thing that is different here from what we've had, where we traditionally hand out hand these things out to everybody. Here, um, there's kind of a, a floor. You have to have a minimum of these numbers. Um, so I think that we'll probably be focusing on the number as opposed to the percentage of returns uh, in the future. Surveys will become mandatory in 2025, as we said, uh, for ambulatory surgery centers in 2024 for HLPDs. And the results will be made available uh, to the public on the provider data catalog website. So keep in mind, all of this information is going to be um, readily available. I Maybe readily is not the right term, uh, but you know somebody that that really wants to look this stuff up uh, will have access to it. And I'm sure over time, that's going to be even more, even easier for people to look this up. And the questions that are included in OAS CAPS will include communication with different staff and providers about the procedure, the preparation for discharge and recovery, facility cleanliness, and overall rating, as well as basic demographic questions. And indeed, there's quite a bit of demographic questions in there that kind of muck up those numbers. You know, most of the questions that we put on our surveys have to do with the actual care uh, to the patient, whereas a lot of the questions on OAS CAPS are asking about the demographics of the patients. And CMS designed the OAS CAPS to be implemented nationally, so survey administration is standardized. And currently, Press Ganey, uh, who wrote this particular blog, offers three CMS-permitted administration modes, a digital first, mixed mode, initial and surveying, and follow-up by mail or phone to non-respondents, and mail only and telephone only. So when you contract with one of the contractors out there, be aware there's different ways that you can have this done and make sure that the one that you choose is going to work with your particular demographic. Again, you've got to meet that 200 minimum requirement there. And CMS does suggest starting the process while it's still voluntary in 2024 so that they can be prepared before that data is publicly reported and before there are financial implications uh, to your organization. When it becomes mandatory, any ASCs that do not administer and report OAS caps could be subject to a penalty of 2% of their annual Medicare payment update, as we discussed earlier. Same thing. So in order to, to not be penalized by CMS, you're going to have to do all 
of that previously the previous discussion we had with the ASC quality measures as well as the OAS caps, which come in to play in 2025. Uh, and again, we'll provide a link to this particular article from uh, from Prescani. And of course, if you're interested in uh, joining Prescani, uh, make sure you are a member of ASC Association also because they do offer a pretty good discount. I just wanted to throw out there, I saw on the ASCA site that um, the the three mixed modes are mail with telephone follow-up, electronic with mail follow-up, or electronic with phone follow-up. So I think that's been updated since then. And of course, a major part of the 2024 uh, final payment rule for HOPDs and ASCs has to do with the Medicare rates. And as we talked about in the first segment, there are some problems with the rates as they've been loaded into the MAC systems. In other words, into the system that is being used to pay you. So uh, hopefully this problem will be fixed before they actually start paying on the claims that you're submitting in 2024. Uh, more to come on that. Hopefully in the next podcast, we'll have an update and and hopefully by then they'll fix that. Uh, but I did have an opportunity to uh, meet with Christina Benton. Uh, we did a uh, remote um, interview, and unfortunately, the quality of the uh, interview was less than our ideal. Uh, Christina lives up in the mountains, and for some reason, she doesn't get the greatest uh, internet connection up there, so please bear with us in this interview. But we had an opportunity to talk about the payment side and the coding side of this rule, so let's listen to that interview next. I'm here with Christina Benton, my dear friend from Coding Compliance Management. Uh, for those that follow the podcast, uh, you all know that uh, Christina is a good friend, that we spend a lot of time talking about various financial things, and she's my uh, co-conspirator with the, the Business Office Managers Boot Camp, as well as our uh, financial management conferences that we've been doing. Uh, what is it, Christina? Ever since uh, 2020, right? During the pandemic. That's when yeah. we... That's it. Doing them. So, so we thought we would talk uh, about the 2024 uh, HOPD ASC payment plan. Now, uh, we when, during some of our uh, conferences, some, during some of our our uh, podcasts, we had talked about doing an actual full day conference on this. But Christina and I uh, evaluated the final payment plan <laughs> and kind of decided that there wasn't much to it that would turn into a full-day conference. So uh, we kind of agreed we'd do this interview here. So welcome, Christina, to the podcast. It's great to have you back. Well, thank you, John. I always love having a chat with you. So uh, as we said, there there wasn't uh, a lot of changes to the payment plan, but those things that did change you know, are, are kind of important. So Christina, why don't you give us a, kind of an overview of the, uh, the final rule? Okay, great. Um, so... In 2024, we've had a little bit of an increase in the rates for ambulatory surgery center, approximately 3.1, which it normally would have been 3.3, factoring in the hospital market basket update. But as you know, with the last several years, we have to introduce the multi-factor productivity adjustment of 0.2, so we result in about 3.3. One, which is an increase. Some high uh, volume procedures performed or the top procedures performed in ASCs have or may see a bigger increase, about 6%. And those top 10 of the top 100 might see 7%. And then you have those that may see a decrease. So 
The big thing as a reminder would be that your ambulatory surgery centers are doing its due diligence and reviewing its top cases within its ASC to see if you've got any money makers or deal breakers. So I think what we're seeing a little bit in some of the decline and decrease of reimbursement, you might want to check your cardiovascular because there are some codes that have seen a little bit of a hit. Some of your common urology procedures have seen a little bit of an increase that was a win-win for that particular specialty. So we do have some additions to the Medicare CPL list for 2024, and those include about 11 codes, surgery codes, and then a multitude of dental codes that may or may not get reimbursed separately. We'll go into that in a minute. But... We do have an addition of thyroidectomy, a focused ultrasound ablation therapeutic intervention procedure. That's actually listed as a C code and although paid in the ASC. And then transcatheter implantation of wireless pulmonary artery pressure sensor for long-term hemodynamic monitoring. That's been added to the list. Our reconstruction of mandibular rami has been added. And then we also have the big and bad, the arthroplasty shoulders, total and partial, and our total ankle arthroplasties have been added to the list this year. Our total shoulder gets about $14,000 in the ASC, but does that cover our cost to do the cases or not? No, this is a big win for the industry is, uh, you know, starting to see more of these totals included. And of course, we've been waiting for the shoulders. We were very disappointed with the proposed ruling back in July that these uh, that there really were were none of these things added except for dental procedures. So this is a big win for us. But uh, but like you, I'm very concerned about the reimbursement rate that's been proposed for the Medicare rates. That's right. And for the partial shoulder, the reimbursement's about 9000 plus, depending on the county and location of the facility, obviously. So, you know, once you compile and factor in your or analyze your cost to do the procedure, your employee time, et cetera, then is it worth it or not? So, you know, we're dealing with high dollar implants that are the, the reimbursement is rolled up into that CPT code and reimbursement in total. So, you know, is this going to make it and will that show then if we're able to bring these cases on since we've had an additional two years for a trial to be reimbursed according to the hospital market basket rather than the consumer price index for urban consumers will that be enough to move some of these cases from the hospital outpatient department to the ASC we have a bit of a catch-22 here too don't we that um, you know, many of these procedures are being re- reimbursed right now on a commercial insurance is at significantly higher rates. And when Medicare comes in and uh, they, they basically create a floor, which is, of course, much slower than what, uh, uh, you know, what many of these organizations are being paid right now, which I think, I don't know about you, but I think this is definitely going to have the effect of pushing those reimbursement rates from the commercial insurance carriers down. Absolutely, because commercial carriers tend to follow in suit of what Medicare reimbursement rates are. So it it can be very concerning in that realm of the reimbursement overall across the board. So 
it's um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And of course, you know, we've already spoken about in the past, the past few years about transparency amongst the troops here with hospital outpatient as opposed to ASCs. And we have that co-insurance, that copay that the beneficiary gets docked on for the ASC as opposed to hospital outpatient departments where we may not see that those cases come to our centers because it may be more affordable for the patient a beneficiary for Medicare to stay at the hospital outpatient department and prevent them from having to pay a higher insurance. Um, right now, the hospital outpatient department cap is about sixteen thirty-two. It was about sixteen hundred last year, and the ASCs don't have that cap, so they're the responsibility on the patient or beneficiary side for the Medicare beneficiary continues to keep going higher and higher and higher. Yeah, that, and that's, uh, of course, something to ask. And we talked about that with uh, um, Bill Prentice a couple times on the podcast here, that that's one of those things that that, that ASCA is working very hard to uh, to eliminate that inpatient uh, cap, or at least allow us to have a, uh, a cap also uh, on the ASC side. But it does not appear, well, it, it certainly didn't get into the, the final 2024 payment rule. Not at all. And as uh, ASCA has mentioned many times, it may literally come to an act of Congress literally to make that happen. So um, we do have the dental codes that were added, but you have just as many dental codes listed within the CPL list that are identified as a payment indicator of a D1, which is packaged reimbursement of that particular procedure, no separate identifiable reimbursement. And then you have about 25, 26 codes that do see a little bit of a reimbursement from a dental Medicare perspective this year. That G code that they threw out there in 2023 mentioning the dental rehabilitation procedures now has a payment attached to it, about $1,300. And then we have a slew of 25 remaining dental codes such as gingivectomy, aveloplasties, impacted wisdom teeth, anywhere from $450 to two thousand dollars depending on the type of procedure so it's something for the facilities and we personally have had facilities that do dental work as far as oral surgery they are all excited about these codes because many of them they have been doing anyway in their surgery centers so you've got just as many that aren't paid separately as far as the it's a package deal for the primary, and then you've got about 25, 26 that have a separate reimbursement. Yeah, I think that's a very positive move, especially if it does transfer over to uh, any of uh, the states on the Medicaid side. Uh, many of those procedures mm-hmm. are reimbursed, uh, are, are often on Medicaid patients. Uh, do you think it's going to have a big impact on Medicare patients, though? I mean, are there going to be a lot of dental uh, cases done for Medicare? I, I don't think so, right? I I don't see, you know, just in in... The facilities that we work with, we don't see many on the Medicare side. We see right. it mainly on, other than maybe an aveloplasty or two, we don't see many except for the Medicaid side with children coming in with situational anxiety right. that um, need to have some work performed. 
Yeah, so your mileage may vary on, on this one, but in those states which uh, adopt Medicaid rates for ASCs that are similar to or based upon the Medicare rates, this could be a, a real positive mood. As you pointed out, I think, you know, for most of our clients that do dental, it's often more of a charity type situation you know, for those organizations. So this uh, this might actually, you know, be a positive and certainly allows or, or makes it more apparent that dental procedures can be done indeed in a surgery center. I think it's always been an outlier until until this these new pay, uh, payment codes came into effect. That's right. And then when you think about the commercial payers that tend to follow Medicare, perhaps there may be a little bit of a segue or a way in for those procedures to be covered pending what the commercial carriers will allow. Well, and I, and I think from a, a, a safety standpoint, uh, you know, I've always been somewhat concerned about some of these procedures, especially these bigger procedures uh, being done in a in a dentist's office. Not nothing against the the great dentists that are out there, but you know, there there could be complications here, and and this is probably a safer environment. What do you think about the uh, the payment rate increase? I mean, you and I have talked a little bit uh, over time about you know the inflationary pressures that we're all suffering right now. But three point one percent. What do you think of that number? Three point one percent, one point nine percent, one point two percent. It doesn't. It's not keeping up. It doesn't seem to be keeping up with the inflationary needs of or the market. Um, you know, it's just it's good that CMS has allowed us those couple of years to be able to utilize the hospital market basket, which, again, the, the hospitals utilize. And it's more of liability insurance, utilities, overhead, staffing costs or wages rather than the goods and services and products bought as what the consumer price index for urban consumers was. It's it's good, but it doesn't bring us. We're still at about anywhere from 50 to 61 percent of what the hospital outpatient departments get reimbursed. So we're still not up there. I think we have a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, and and I think one of the challenges or the big challenge that we have right now is we're of course competing very directly with the hospitals for, you know, nursing staff for well for all of the different uh, uh, clinical staff in our organization, which means that uh, in the past we were able to make the argument that well perhaps coming over to a surgery center, uh, you know, is is nicer because you won't be working those uh, long hours or won't we be working through the night. A lot of those advantages are disappearing as people, as we find surgery centers open on Saturdays or Sundays or even into the evening. So it's a little bit harder to make that argument. I agree. And you know, ASCs, as you say, they're having to be really competitive with the hospital outpatient department. And that means being a 24-7 you know, at right. this point in some cases to be able to bring those patients in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm very concerned about the uh, about the pressure that we're going to have. Uh, you know, we have never seen, uh, you know, reimbursement rates going above, you know, 4% on the Medicare side. I, I mean, I think 3.1 might be one of the highest numbers. I, I'm, I'm blanking right now on what some of the past numbers were. Right. It certainly doesn't keep pace. Yeah, I agree. 2023 was about 3.8, actually, which was mainly because of the drug outpatient drug um, change that they had, the 340B mandate that was out there. So they, it was about 3.8 last year. But before then, it was anywhere from with the hospital market basket being utilized as the inflation update factor was 2.1, 2.7, 2.4, 2.6, you know, and 
and down. Um, 2018 was when we had the consumer price index, and that was about 1.2. So, well, and and I think the clinical staff are going to be asking for raises because you know the consumer price index has gone up so much. The cost of food, the cost of uh, uh, fuel, uh, both for home and for vehicles, uh, is far in excess of of any of these numbers here. And they're going to be looking to uh, uh, you know to get salary increases commensurate with that. So, and and we're not going to see an end to this inflationary pressure for quite some time. At least that's what I'm hearing economically. I agree. So there have been some changes on the ancillary services also. Do you want to address that? Sure. The non-opioid drugs that act as a supply during surgery, they are utilized for pain management. There has been a removal of one code. Typically, we're looking, we were looking at Expiril, for example, Amidria, Dextenza, Zarkal, and Posamir. And that Posamir has been removed from that list but it's still reimbursed through the pass-through system or the it's separately paid in 2024 under the OPPS transitional pass-through status. So basically what happens with Medicare is that they're not going to put a drug that they feel may be able to be reported separately as a double duty on both lists. So they don't get, they don't want a reimbursement double. So they will put it if they if it is approved to be considered a non-opioid pain management drug, then it will be listed as such. And that has to meet certain criteria, which would be obviously FDA approved and then the cost of that drug to be utilized. So Posamir is now a pass-through. So it is separately reimbursed until it sunsets or expires. And that may expire in October of next year, or it may expire the following year. That's something that you would have to, we'd have to look and see what their expiration is. But there are other drugs that are separately reimbursed. It's just a matter if they are being reimbursed as a pass-through status. So those non-opioid pain management drugs that are typical that we see are still there and separately reimbursed according to how it's utilized in the ASC. So it's important for your coding staff to be well aware of these these rules and, and keep a very close eye on the operative reports to determine whether those drugs have been used and code them appropriately. How would they code them in their uh, on the claims, the Medicare claims? It is very important that, well said, <laughs> Mr. Gailey, because <laughs> what we're seeing from a reimbursement perspective is literally a sticker that's being utilized or a log that's being utilized to be able to capture the reimbursement of some of these drugs. And there's no mention at all in the operative report about the specific drug, the amount that's utilized, and how it was utilized and instilled within that patient. So it is very important that it not only do we show how it was utilized within the operative report, but you can back it up that this was the medication with that implant log or that drug log, but don't just rely only on the sticker that might be attached to an operative report. We're seeing a lot of issues with that. Yeah, and, and uh, I would be concerned here too, because often we don't have control over the physician who is uh, writing that operative report. If he doesn't understand or is not 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 one of the owners of the surgery center who's concerned about the reimbursement. Uh, he might have to be re-educated or encouraged to include that in his operative report. 
uh, so that you you can indeed uh, reimbursement uh, re get reimbursed for it. Correct. That is absolutely right. He needs to have that education as well. And then checking into the MAC, Medicare Administrative Contractor, to see sure. what its stipulations are. And of course, keep an eye out for how this might translate into your reimbursement for insurance claims that are based upon the Medicare reimbursement system. Hopefully these transfer into those agreements that you have. And if you're in the process of negotiating those agreements or uh, are looking at those agreements, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, that this does cross over into your commercial payers also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we also had some changes a little bit Um this year from 2023 to 2024 on those complexity adjustment codes. If you recall those pairings of the add-on codes with the primary procedure code to be able to extrapolate a higher reimbursement, last year it was 55 codes, this year it's 47. And there act there is an Excel spreadsheet that provides what are the eligible codes listings and then the ineligible code listings that were eligible once in 2023. So it's something that if people were new to it, they were reporting a C code. If they had an add-on code with a primary that was on that list, it would change to a C code for double the reimbursement. And now we have a little bit of a reduction from 55 to 47 codes. And some of those pairs are no longer on that list. So that is important for your business office and your coders to re-evaluate that listing to make sure that they understand what's been taken off. Yeah. And you bring up, uh, you, you kind of touched upon a subject that's near and dear to both you and me, and that is making sure that your business office staff, your coders, your billers are really tied into what's going on in the operating rooms and uh, and are well aware of the the, the procedures that are uh, that are perhaps that perhaps have not been done in the past, but are being done now. Um, and that, and and also being uh, going to regular coding uh, updates so that they can they have the knowledge to be able to deal with these more complex issues that are uh, suddenly arising. I agree, and the communication that must be utilized within the facility is key, and that includes those materials managers too. Right. Well, and I think another issue, I, and I've run into it just in the last week with, the, you know, talking to some of our clients is that, um, you know, they don't necessarily have professional coders or, um, you know, certified coders. And sometimes, and, you know, please don't scream at me, but, you know, some of them uh, point out how they uh, rely on the uh, physician to be coding these cases and uh, they're not going to catch these things. I mean, this this could really affect your bottom line. You know, if you're not hiring people that are very cognizant or very aware of of how this uh, this complex ASC coding works. You can't just hire any coder to do an ASC position of coding. You have to have someone that has that experience. Right. And don't have office to do the coding for you. Oh, no. And I have, I actually have, John, received two clients because the physicians said, well, we're going to open up an ASC and we'll just send you the codes we used. And the ASCs, Christina, we don't know if this is correct because we don't really have a coder here. So we're having to jump in and verify, and it's not a good verification, I'll tell you. It's um, it's an eye-opener for the facility and the physicians. Right. Well, Christina, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you and I have had all kinds of technical problems recording this, so we apologize to our audience here. And uh, 
And good luck, because I know you're going into an ASCA conference where at least uh, where you have video also. So uh, we, we were lucky in that we only have audio, but. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. And have a great Thank uh, you. holiday season. And uh, uh, let's talk uh, before we go. Why don't we mention what's going on? What do you and I are up to? Oh, we've got a business office manager boot camp that's going to be occurring in March of 2024, and it will have many sessions that are pertinent for the new, the veteran business office managers, administrators definitely can learn from this, at least tweak your already honed in skills, and it's going to be action packed, so I look forward to it. Four yeah. days. Uh, uh, we're following up from our, uh, we did this in August and uh, it was the first time that we had done the boot camp. We learned a lot from it. It was a very successful boot camp, but uh, you can always learn uh, things from it based upon the feedback from the attendees and uh, and also talking to our patron members who are always giving us a lot of great advice as to what to include. So we have uh, revamped it. And for more information on that, you can uh, visit asc-central.com to sign up or go to ascpodcast.com. I think we have a link over there too. So um, we're we're very excited about uh, about that conference, and and I I think uh, you know it's not just business office managers, but also administrators often would, would probably find this. Uh, you know, while we have the administrators boot camp, we don't go into depth about reimbursement um, as much as we do in the in that conference, which of course is your your first love. Oh, absolutely. So again, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. And of course, ASCA 2024 is coming up. It will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, uh, Florida, April 17th through the 20th, 2024. And uh, I, I don't know, uh, Katie, I think we're going to have at least 10 of our staff members there, probably closer to 15 staff members going to the conference. So, And it's not just because it's in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think I'm doing two, I think I'm doing one speech and I think I'm moderating a panel. So, uh, um, and we just have so much fun. I think we did two or three podcasts from there uh, last year, and I know with you on board now with us, uh, we'll uh, we'll be able to drag you in a, a little more frequently to uh, at least moderate. Sometimes Sue is not always able to corral all the people, so uh, right. if as, as long as the two of us are available, I'm pretty sure we'll be able to talk about something. Absolutely, the Georgia Society of ASCs and South Carolina ASC Associations Joint Semiannual Conference and Trade Show is February 22nd through 23rd, 2024, in Atlanta, Georgia at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North, and on August 15th to 16th, 2024, in Hilton Head, South Carolina, at the Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. And I'll see if I can get down to our place in Hilton Head and make that uh, tax-deductible trip down there. Uh, <laughs> How convenient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a good excuse. And Louisiana Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is February 23rd in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the West Baton Rouge Conference Center. That's uh, Christina Benton's hometown. So uh, uh, hopefully she'll uh, maybe she'll uh, head out there for that conference. 
There you go. The Gulf States Conference is June 11th to the 13th, 2024 in Biloxi, Mississippi at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Conference is April 27th through 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Weston Kierland Resort. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 4th to the 5th, 2024 in Daytona Beach, Florida at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort. And their annual conference and trade show is July 17th to the 19th, 2024 in Orlando, Florida at the Signia by Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek. And Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Conference Driven ASC Conference God, his his uh, conference names are getting longer and longer too, aren't they? Uh, so uh, by uh, by our dear friend Scott Becker, it's going to be June nineteenth through twenty second in Chicago, at where it's been for as long as I can remember at the Swiss Hotel. Yes, sir. And in my home state, Texas Ambulatory Surgery Center Society annual conference is June 24th through the 26th in Galveston, Texas, this year at the San Luis Resort Spa and Conference Center. And our friends over at the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual conference is going to be September 4th through the 6th in Anaheim, California at the Anaheim Marriott. The Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Conference is September 12th to the 13th, 2024 in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. And lastly, the Becker's ASC 30th Annual Meeting of the Business and Operations of ASCs, again, a long title, is October 30th through November 2nd in Chicago, Illinois at the Hyatt Regency. Changing it up. For this. I guess they are. I was just going to say, I didn't realize they moved there. And don't forget about our upcoming conferences. We have the Credentialing, Privileging, and Peer Review Conference next week on January 11th through the 12th. Uh, And this is going to be an update to our 2020 conference on credentialing. And we're going to be adding a lot of new content, particularly in the area of peer review. And uh, Katie, just before I got on with you, I was meeting with uh, Ann Geyer. She is so excited uh, to present almost a half day of peer review information. So we're really upping the game when it comes to peer review now. We're very excited about that, as well as, you know, a full-day conference. This is the only conference in the industry that spends more than an hour talking about credentialing, to the best of my knowledge. And and even in the 12 hours of this uh, over this two-day period, uh, we still have to leave some stuff out because we just don't have enough time. So I really encourage you to uh, join us for that conference. And for more information, go to asc-central.com. And our uh, ASC Administrators Boot Camp goes into its fourth year uh, in uh, January. It's going to be January 23rd through the 26th, 2024. And for the second time, uh, our Business Officer Boot Camp, it's moving from August to March. It's going to be March 12th through the 15th, 2024. And all of those are available on ASC-Central.com. Our boot camps have become the uh, industry standard for leadership training, and we really encourage uh, all of you to consider joining up for that. So again, ASC-Central.com. And on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing, ASC Administrators, and ASC Business Office Manager boot camps are available, again, on our sister website at ASC-Central.com. I can't emphasize that enough, actually, is even if you participate or you don't have the time to, uh, please, please uh, go ahead and and get it uh, on demand and then just listen to it in your car, on your way to work, on your way home, whatever. Speaking from personal experience again, right? (laughs) (laughs) I believe you've actually attended multiple versions of those uh, those over time. Uh, Katie is one of those that just uh, one version of it is not enough for her. So that's right. That's right. You got to see if 
something different. And there usually is that little extra nugget that you didn't do in the first one that now is in the second one. So, and, and I think uh, that I is the it. advantage. Anybody that attends this conference, even though the virtual component of it, you know, is live over a four day uh, four days. Uh, many people can't attend the whole thing. Some people can't even attend any of it. You know, they thought they could, and then they have to bow out for it. And they have access to the recordings. And we say that you have access for six months, but we've actually never cut anybody off. Even the people that took our first boot camp in 2021 still have access. I'm going to have to take it away soon because I'm running out of space on the uh, on the file uh, system. But uh, uh, but that is uh, something that uh, I think people find very valuable. And we do want to remember, remind everybody to become a patron member of the podcast. We have over 150 patron members. I think we're closer to 200 now, patron members. Uh, and this is also known as ASC Central. It's at the ASC-Central website. It's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation, compliance, operations, and financial management resource for all of those busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, our links to various resources on the internet, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. And membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you can visit asc-central.com. And I don't even mention there that probably the the biggest – draw to the patron program is the ability to what we call drop in on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Eastern Standard Time right now um, to uh, just have a talk with everybody. We spent about an hour on the uh, on a Zoom session with anybody that wants to drop in and ask questions. And it's a it's probably the most valuable thing for that $25 a month that you pay for a patron member. As I said, we have over, uh, I, I think it's closer to 200. Someday I'll have to look that number up, uh, patron members of it. But we probably, what is it, Katie? We only have between 15 and 20 uh, at the most on on it. You know, it's different. It rotates. There's some regulars yeah. like yourself. Uh, usually and, and what your, I found was yeah. I initially didn't have questions. I sat there and listened to you all talk about what's going on in, in the ASC industry or, or listen to other people's questions, which then prompted questions for me and it made me more comfortable. So if you're hesitant because you're thinking, I don't have any questions, just come on in and we'll have a chat about what's going on and, and you'll find that usually there's something that's going to show up for you. Yeah, and and don't feel like you have to turn your camera on, by the way, uh, or, right. or for that matter, your <laughs> microphone. As a matter of fact, I think it often Lori Rodericks, who joins us almost every Saturday, and myself are usually the only people who have the camera on, and Sue, if she uh, if she's there. But uh, yeah, I, no, I, I think it's a very valuable tool, and, and, uh, we, ha- and we actually have a lot of fun. Uh, with it, uh, so you know, when when we had puppies, we uh, we turned the puppy cam on so that everybody could see the puppies, and then we introduced Rosie every once in a while. And of course, now with the new baby, uh, that happens. But the main reason here is to answer your questions. And I think one of the things that's so valuable during this patron program too is that uh, we we get a lot of um, a lot of people uh, come on just before a survey, uh, and then they ask a lot of questions directly related to it. And we'll have two, sometimes three, surveyors on. Uh, answering questions uh, during this uh, this Saturday morning. And we do try to move it around every once in a while. We're going to try to move it periodically to Fridays too during the workday. Saturdays just happens to be the time that most people actually are able to get away to do it. And I'm sorry that not everybody wants to be working on weekends, but it does seem to be the time that people do, do tend to join us. So again, information about the patron program is available on ASCCentral.com. And I want to thank you all for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. 
If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We would love any feedback about our episodes or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCPodcast.com. And we'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make the podcast possible. Our our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, uh, who hopefully will be back in time to edit this uh, episode. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to sound very good. Uh, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Susan Cronkite, uh, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Durbano, uh, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Christina Norma, and of course, Katie Pearson, who thank you so much, Katie, for joining me this week. We thank really you. couldn't do it without this great team that we have. And our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence, offering a comprehensive and next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, MedServe, which offers the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs and prevent drug diversion, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, which is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For information about any of our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. And we'd love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>